Thanks for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, check us out at cbctaylorville.com. Join us now as our guest speaker delivers this week's message. Well, I'm so happy to be here today. Um, thankful for uh, God's grace in my life. you thankful for God's grace in your life. <laughs> we are in a Christmas season, a season that reminds us of the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to, in a few minutes, talk about joy to the world, a sermon titled Joy to the World. And we're going to look at um, John the Baptist, a very unique character in the process of the coming of Christ. Um, but before we do that, we're going to read a, a passage of scripture. And I don't know if you do this. I do this in our church. So if you could just stand up real quick. Um, we're going to read the word together. Just in honor of God's word. In Luke chapter 3, we're going to read uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I think it's on your screen. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judah, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Atyria, and uh, Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas, and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and high and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is God's word for God's people. Know this truth, believe this truth, and live this truth. You may be seated. So just, just a little background so you can kind of um, understand um, the, the, as we jump right into this passage. Luke was God's tool to write the gospel of Luke. He was known as the beloved physician. It was written to Gentile converts and traces the genealogy back from Adam as the father to the human race rather than Abraham, which some gospels do, to the father of the Jewish people. This was written from Rome, Paul's imprisonment. Luke traveled with Paul on some of his missionary journeys. He was with him doing ministry, and now Paul's in jail. And Luke's writing this message. This was a very dark time of political and spiritual corruption. On top of all that, this was a time when God was silent. No word came from God for over 400 years. They didn't have the completed word of God, so this was a big deal. No prophet had spoken. You can imagine how people may have felt in this time. 
Maybe they felt alone. More than likely, they felt very alone. They, they probably felt ignored because the time of corruption and oppression was taking place. Maybe they felt abandoned by God, left, useless. They probably felt a, a sense of devalue. And maybe they were just confused, feeling like they had no direction as to how to deal with the corruption and the corrupted leaders that were around them. This book is one of the Gospels that starts in the New Testament and tracks the life of Jesus Christ. And the whole book was written to highlight Christ's compassion for the outcast. Christ's compassion for the outcast. In this book, you can see, if you read it, what a great book to read during this month. You can see his compassion for the Samaritans. You can see his compassion for women who were marginalized at that time. You can see his passion for sinners like the tax collectors. But you'll see compassion emphasized throughout this book. And I wonder how we came into church today. How do we feel? I wonder in the times that we find ourselves in with corruption all around us. Now, I'm coming from the city of Chicago. A lot of corruption in Chicago. A whole lot of corruption. But sin's everywhere. And I don't know if you're feeling alone today. And maybe you're feeling ignored today. Maybe God's not answering prayers that you're praying to him today. Maybe you're feeling a sense of abandonment from him or you're feeling no sense of value. Maybe you're just confused. Does it seem like God's not interested in you at all? Well, here's the main point of the sermon today. Jesus is the solution that brings joy to a corrupt and evil world. Jesus is the solution that brings joy to a corrupt and evil world. See, today we're going to take a hard look at what actually happened before the ministry of Christ, before Jesus actually started his ministry. Before Jesus started his ministry, someone came on the scene. This person was called by God to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. And his name was John. They call him John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. He stepped on the scene somewhere around 29 A.D. In B.C. But remember, it is important to recognize as we look into the story, we are coming into the story at a point in time when everything seems hopeless. I want to just, just for us to understand the, the environment that's, that's around, the people, what they're living in, the circumstance, the hopeless reality that they're experiencing. And I want to ask you this question. Have you felt hopeless because of evil rulers in your life? Leaders over our country, leaders over our towns or our cities, 
leaders over our communities, leaders over our workplace, leaders even over our families. We have been, if we'd be really honest, in some very dark and hopeless times, just like the people in this story. And I wanna know, are you feeling hopeless? What are you doing in that dark place, in that hopeless time, in this hopeless time, when evil leaders seem to rule? I don't know if you're like me, but I have a hard time when I can't control something. And when things happen different, um, way, ways different than I think they should happen, it, it's, it's hard. When certain people get elected into office or certain things seem to happen that I, I get, I, and I see the writing on the wall and what's ahead of us, I, I have a hard time with that reality. But one thing that's important for us to recognize as we see in this story, as we face dark times now and dark times to come, because make no mistake about it, dark times are coming. It's important that we remember and that we recognize that in the darkness, the darkest time, God spoke. In the darkest time, God spoke. He starts this passage. Now, just listen for a second. If you remember when I was reading and you were wondering where I was going to trip up on all those words and all those names, you know, I had to practice a bunch of times to make sure I kind of got through it um, and didn't butcher it. But, but he starts this passage by highlighting some evil political leaders in that time that ruled over God's people, Israel. In fact, during this time, Rome had dominion over Israel. Tiberius Caesar... He was a, a stepson of Augustus, and he ruled from A.D. 13, uh, 14 to 37. He was not a notor as notorious an, an evil man like his successor Caligula or his later successor Nero, who you probably know about him. But he was not a godly man by any means. And then it talks about Pontius Pilate. You guys remember Pontius Pilate, right? But he ruled as governor over Judea. He, he, would, he would become infamous for delivering Jesus over to be crucified to satisfy the Jewish leaders. Then he mentions Herod and Tephas. Uh, he was the son of the wicked Herod, the great. He ruled over Galilee, and he would, he would later imprison and then behead John. These are the people he's looking at here. And then he, he talks about Herod's brother, Philip, who ruled over the region to the east and the north of Galilee. And Lysanias, who ruled over uh, as governor over Abilene, further from the northwest. Evil leaders. Sinful people in charge. Making the laws, making, make, making the rules. They were under Rome's thumb. But probably what's worse than that is, is the next two people he mentions. Because they are also evil. He highlights two prominent spiritual leaders that were also evil. Annas and Caiaphas. He mentions that they both shared the high priesthood. And, and even though the high priesthood was a spiritual office that should have been respected, neither of these men knew God 
And neither of them were concerned about spiritual matters at all. They were nothing more than politicians who, who occupied spiritual offices. They only cared about their own power. They only cared about their own prestige. These people only cared about lining their own pockets. Can you imagine a time not only where evil leaders were, were ruling and you were under their thumb, but the very spiritual leaders that occupied the place that you should be able to look to for guidance and direction in a time where God was silent were also evil and corrupt. How hopeless of a time this could be. And here were these people dealing with this reality. It was a hopeless time ruled by evil leaders. This was a dark time. And we know as we look into Revelation that dark times are here and dark times are coming. But what's more important that I want us to kind of grasp today is what are we doing in the darkness what are you doing in this darkness? Have you become hopeless? It's important for us to notice that in the darkness, God's plan of deliverance was in motion. See, Luke quotes the prophecy of Zechariah. God's plan was in motion before any of these evil rulers came on the scene, before any of these people were appointed to spiritual positions of leadership. God's plan was in motion. God has started his plan before any of us stepped on the face of this earth. He knew who would be in political positions. He knew would be who would be leading your own home. He knew who would be leading your workplace. He knew already, way before you were ever born. And he put his process, his plan in motion. It's important that we know that. It's important that we remember that, that God's plan is in motion. Even when it seems like he's not speaking. Even when he see, it seems like he's not working. See, darkness reigned when the gospel of Christ was brought into the world. It was hard to see God's, God, how God is working. It's hard to see now how God's working in our world. If we would be honest, it's hard to see how God's working in our country. I got to say it's hard to see how God's working in our city. If we'd be honest in Chicago, if churches keep closing at the rate they're closing, this was before the pandemic, there will not be an evangelical presence in Chicago in the next 20 years. It is hard soil. People just are not open to the gospel. It's hard to see how God is working many times in our communities. It's hard to see how God's working in our schools, in our workplaces, and even if we'd be honest in our families sometimes. Try to lead that kid. We try to show him the way. He's just not following. No desire for God. It's important to remember that in darkness, in the darkest, most hopeless time, God is at work. Do you know that today? Uh, you know, this is where faith is exercised. You know that even in when all the circumstance and everything seems glim, you trust that God's plan is in motion. That you're not alone, that you've not been abandoned, that you're not unheard, that he does care for you, that he does see you that he is at work 
with a perfect plan. You don't need to feel alone. Today, you don't need to feel ignored. You don't need to feel abandoned. And you don't need to feel devalued or confused. You don't need to fall in the lie that God is not interested in you or that God is not at work. He died for you. He loves you. His plan is in process. God works in times of darkness. In times of darkness, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ was brought into the world. I love this verse. John 1, 1 through 9 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. I love verse 5 here. It says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Shines, present tense, shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Do you believe that today? That Christ, the relevance of Jesus, is just as bright and just as real as this moment where he stepped on the scene. That he's just as practically the solution and he always has been for the evils that we face in our world. No matter how dark, how corrupt, how unfavorable the times may be, never despair. If we, are the, if we are at the very moment when all hope was lost, that God was preparing a mighty work of deliverance. During the season when Satan seemed to be triumphing the most, God was releasing his secret weapon of victory. You know, I love my mom. My mom, uh, you can pray for her. She just got diagnosed with cancer a couple weeks ago. And about a month ago, I lost my brother from cancer. About four weeks ago, during our kids' club, there was a shooting right in front of our, right in front of our church where the kids were outside. They just ran inside and, and just avoided all the bullets. A guy I was ministering to about a month ago, after being shot three times, he was a gang leader, was shot five times and killed. I can go on and on with stories. And you step into Garfield Park, and you're going to be inside darkness. You'll feel it. The presence of Satan's rule is so thick. But inside the darkness, God's at work. God's at work. The kids didn't get hit by the bullets. <laughs> God's at work. We just ordained a pastor... I've been discipling for 15 years a young man from our neighborhood who's now one of our pastors. God's at work. One of our deacons was the leader of the gang in our community. He used to be the one starting all the chaos. Now he just became our deacon, one of our deacons of our church. 
10 years of discipleship, but God didn't work. It takes patience sometimes to trust the work of the Lord, the things that the Lord is doing. But I love my mom. She always wanted to get up in the morning on Easter. She wanted to go down to Lake Michigan when it was dark, and she wanted to sit there until the sun rose. Easter morning. She always invited us to come, and I remember sitting there in the darkness with her, waiting. And then that sun started. Before you could even see it, the sky started getting a little lighter. And then you would start seeing it peek over the horizon of the lake and rise. And church, it's important for us to remember important for us to remember that it is the darkest hour of night in the darkest hour of night that comes right before the day right before the day is darkness that light is just around the corner the work of Christ the work that he is doing he is just around. He is at work even when you don't see it. See, the sun is moving before you can see that it has risen. And God is at work before you can see. Even in the darkness, he's moving. He's moving in the hearts of people that you thought the gospel presentation you gave them fell on deaf ears. He's working in your sons and in your daughters who don't seem to have a desire for God. He's working in your boss's heart. He's working in your neighbor's life. He's working, he's working in as God puts godly people next to them. He's working even in the darkest places. And we got to trust that he's at work. Think about the hopeless place you have been in and own this truth that in the darkness God speaks. God's working. So in the darkness, darkest time God spoke. Second, I want you to see this, that God call precedes God's work. And I don't, know, I don't know about you, but so often I move ahead of God. We work, we, we think, we identify something that needs to be corrected or worked on. And then we ask, why is not God not working in that? <laughs> we move ahead of God. We try to fix everything. We try to do everything in our own flesh, in our own strength, in our own power. Remember Acts, right? When Jesus, after Jesus had rose from the dead, what did he first tell his disciples to do? Wait and pray <laughs> until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then he was going to work. When God was ready to move, what did he do? Man, Peter spoke at Pentecost and all these people came to Christ. That God's not in the business of failing. He's in the business of doing and accomplishing his work that he sets out to do. The problem is many times we're moving ahead of him. We're trying to say, God, catch up to me. And he's like, no. You slow down and you wait on me. Let me go ahead of you. I love that sign, yield. Uh, you know, the yield sign. Basically, what it tells you is you need to stop and let someone who has the right to go ahead of you move ahead. Right? Well, God has the right to go ahead of you. The gospel of Jesus Christ must go ahead of you. You must lead with Jesus. He must not be a caboose in your engine. He must be the, in, the, the driving force, the train in, the, in your life. 
So often we move ahead of God and then ask, why isn't he working? God is at work. You just need to get in tune with him rather than trying to get him in tune with you. You need to move at his pace rather than trying to have him move at your pace. It takes a lot of humility to wait on God and have faith in him. But I want to tell you there are four things uh, that you need to know about John. There, 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 some things that I think we can learn about him. The first one is this. John was a weird dude, man. <laughs> he was a really, really weird dude. Um, if, if you look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, it says, Now John was a, a, wore a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. I, I wonder if the guy at the door would have shook his hand. He'd be like, hey, hey, we need to get this dude coming in here in the church, man. This guy is weird. We need to watch him. He probably distracted all of us in the room. Because you know he would have been right up in the front seat. Probably smelled, man, stunk. Ooh, can imagine. Well, here's a simple point. God uses weird people. <laughs> he uses weird people. So if you are, if you are, uh, uh, you, you call yourself a nerd, or if you if you're an outcast, or you're different or unusual, God can use you. God can use you. Actually, God uses all people. But we often deny God's power, the power of God's work through us. You know, I think I, I often hear people talk about, man, if just Michael Jordan would get saved, or just if, if this superstar would get saved, this great person, man, if that would just happen, we'd be good. God doesn't need a superstar. He doesn't need a superhero because he is one. He doesn't need some athlete to get saved, finally to get his, his message heard. And if we look, if we just, we forget so often about the people God has used in Scripture. Fishermen, tax collectors, murderers. Me, you. Why did he take a white dude and bring him to Garfield Park? <laughs> I remember when I first was about to go there, somebody said, do you really think you're the right guy for the job? What makes you think you're the right guy for the job, man? And I did grow up in the city. He didn't know, you know, I was always the white, only white dude in the room. But I said, the only reason why I know I'm the right one for the job is because God said so. And he uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. He, he constantly takes simple things so that he gets all the glory because everybody knows he couldn't have done it. He takes a simple message of the gospel to change the world with it. I think that's the hardest thing about the gospel. You'd say, really? I just need to place my faith in Jesus as my Lord and say, I don't have to do anything. Just have faith, place my faith, and I'm saved, forgiven from all sin. We're like, there's got to be something I have to do. No. It's all, the, all that he's done. Isn't that the hardest thing with the gospel is you don't work for it? He does all the work. You work from it, not for it. And we're going to look at that in a second, but... Yeah, God uses weird people. Remember that M main point of the sermon, right? But we forgot God. Uh, God actually uses weird people and, and, and different people and stuff. All kinds of people for his work, just like God's using Roy right now. Roy Brown, who used to lead the evil people, people towards sin and destruction by selling drugs and doing that. Now God's using him to lead men to Jesus as he's part of the men's ministry. That's what God does. See, it would have been easy to meet Roy. Oh, just 
forget you. Isn't what that mean? That was what was so hard when Paul came to Christ. The disciples were like, not him. He can't be. I don't trust this. And God used Paul. Look at what God did through Paul. Church after church after church is planted. Many people saved. One of the most people written of in scripture. Correcting churches. He became a corrector of the church. God used him. Well, another thing about John, John was created for purpose. In Luke chapter 1, verse 13 through 17, it says this, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your, your prayer has been heard, and your, your wife Elizabeth will be a bear son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or, or, or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the, chil- to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready the Lord a people prepared. And then in Luke 1, 76, it says this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For It said in this passage, he grew strong. This meant that he was, he was growing intimately with God. He was growing strong in the world, the, the Lord. And you know, growing, growing in the Lord takes sacrifice. I love Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says, uh, therefore, in view of the mercies of God, after all of Romans, the first 11 chapters, he talks about the gospel. And now in view of the gospel and those who have received Christ as Lord and Savior, he says, in view of the mercies of God, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of the world, sacrifice, but be transformed by renewing your mind. Then you'll be able to know what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Growing takes sacrifice. It takes an investment from you, time from you, sacrifice of denying yourself. See, uh, John the Baptist separated himself in the wilderness, went out in the wilderness and lived and grew in his relationship with God. His sacrifice of time, that took time. He was out there for a while. This wasn't a quick thing. This wasn't just a quick Sunday sermon. He can get in and get out. You're not done yet, pastor. Let's go. I got to go. It took an investment of time. He met with the Lord regularly. We need to make sacrifices, denying worldliness, pursuing Christ-likeness, investing with, in time with him in the word, in prayer, growing closer to him, being faithful to Bible study and church, growing closer to God so we could be prepared for our purpose. 
when he calls. We often waste our time of preparation on fruitless pursuits We say things like, we just do not have the time, when in reality, we just don't make the time. We need to prepare for the work of God. The last thing I want you to see, and why this is important as we look at these things in John, is that John was called by God into ministry. God had to do a work in him before he did a work through him. During, in verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. This is the word that came in the darkness from God. And you know what? He was ready for God's call. He was prepared. God were to call you today, are you ready? God identified a purpose that he has on your life that he created you in your mother's womb to fulfill. Are you ready to say yes? How do we know that he was ready? Well, obedience was his response to God's call. He did not question God. There's no record of it. He did not put off responding to God. There's no record of it. He did not doubt God's call. There's no record of it. What did he do? He obeyed God's call. So often we hear something in Sunday service or in a Bible study or in our own intimate time with God. As we study his word, we hear something from his word, a command from God, something clear that makes straight our way of how we should live or something we need to correct in our life or something God has called us to do. And then we just sit on it and don't move. That's not what a follower of Christ does. We need to obey God's call. And you know what prepares you for obedience? Your intimacy with him, with the Father. Your investment in your relationship with him. That's what we see here with John. Now, God's call preceded God's work. But what was the work that God's call, that God called John the Baptist to do? Let's look at that real quick. It was a call to repentance. See, church, repentance prepared people for the salvation of Christ. There was a problem. Although it was a little different than what the people thought the problem was. People were living, like I said, dark time, right? Political and spiritual corruption. But people were focused on and consumed by the wrong problem, causing the corruption. The problem, church, was personal, not political or circumstantial. The problem was personal. This was not a political problem. This was not a government problem. Are you hearing me? This was not an economic problem. This was a personal problem. This was a spiritual problem. Sinful people are the problem. You know, we were last year when all the racial unrest was going on and, and um, in our community. Um, 
I was sitting with my son after our whole community got looted. And mind you, we just passed like 50 years of, of oppression um, after the race riots, um, after Martin Luther King was assassinated and the race riots um, ended up causing all of our all of our stores and our community and everything to be burnt down. It was just celebrate. It was just 50 years since then, and no, no, nothing new was rebuilt. 50 years. Doesn't make any sense, right? Why would we destroy our own community? H had a moment, <laughs> hopeless. What am I doing? What's the point? Why am I in this neighborhood trying to help people change their lives? Trying to help people create a new start? Trying to help do a work? And, and help people change and turn their lives around when all we do is just destroy it again. Finally, we have a corner store. Finally, we have a restaurant. Finally, we have this, and now they're gone. And I was sitting there with my son as we're dealing with these times, not knowing what's ahead. And I looked at my son and said, you know the problem that we're seeing don't get confused. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted, church. You know the problem? It's sin. You know the solution, son, to this? It's Jesus. The solution is Jesus. You know, we trade one, I'm, we're dealing with stuff there, but Taylorville's dealing with stuff here. Some sins are just more hidden than other sins. Some sins are just out there, blatant, out there in front of you where somebody's using drugs right in front of you as you're walking by. But sin's still the problem. Sin was the problem back then, corrupting the, the Roman leaders. Sin was the problem there, corrupting the spiritual leaders. And Jesus comes on the scene as a solution to the problem, church. The answer to this darkness and the answer to the darkness to come has always been Jesus and will always be Jesus. And the only way we fight against the darkness is that we don't lose sight on the solution to the problem that we face. If we are sitting around having more political debate, uh, uh, temper tantrums and, and, and uh, you know, talking about our bosses and talking about our parents and having all these tantrums about the problem, you need to know this, the problem sin. And Jesus is the solution. And we need to start giving, pre preaching the gospel more than we're complaining about all these circumstances that are going on and thinking that if just the circumstance changes, everything will be better. Nothing will be People will still be going to hell. If our economy flourishes, people will still be going to hell. If the government's flourishing, the problem is sin, and there'll be new problems to deal with. We got to preach the gospel, church. Somebody has to get alongside that politician and do what? Preach the gospel. Somebody has to get alongside that parent and preach the gospel. Somebody has to get alongside that child and preach the gospel. Somebody has to get alongside that, that community leader and preach the gospel, that neighbor. Jesus is the solution to the problem, church. I got to get alongside that gangbanger and preach the gospel. Guess what happened? That gangbanger shot five times. People in my church said, you can't. He's dangerous. They're shooting at him. We might get bullets, I said. So you want me to tell him, go to hell. 
Because that's what you're telling me if you're telling me to stop ministering to him. That's what you're telling me to do. If you're telling me stop preaching the gospel to him, that's what you're telling me. Let fear reign. Don't come alongside him because you might get shot. I didn't listen. After I said that, everybody said, no, we wouldn't say that. Of course, we're not saying that. We're not saying tell him to go to hell. Well, you think Christian? I didn't say nothing. Just left it alone. Kept doing what we're doing. Guy died, five shots, dead. And I get a call from the hospital. They brought him back to life. Calls me and says, Pastor Jamie, I'm ready to change. I'm ready to turn my life around. Jesus works in the darkness. Jesus works. Pray for him. His name's Mike. I'm not supposed to let anybody know that he's still alive because they're out to kill him. I just let you guys know. This is going to be on your, your website, right? I don't think my, I'm not saying anything about your website, but I don't think people in my neighborhood are going <laughs> to tune into the website. To, um, but God is working. What he is saying is that something had, something needed to happen that would prepare them spiritually for the salvation of Christ. When he talks here about the baptism of repentance, we get confused with this. It says the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There is no work that you will ever do that will save yourself, not even getting in water. There's three different baptisms that the Bible speaks about. One is this baptism of repentance. I'll talk about it in a second. The other one is the baptism that happens at salvation. When you place your faith in Jesus, you learn Savior. Instantly, the power the Holy Spirit it enters you. You become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You're saved at the point of salvation. The other baptism that we practice in Baptist churches, right, is a publicly declaration of what Christ did in you when you received him as your Lord and Savior. We take you into water, said you died with Christ, you rose up a new person. It's publicly, it's a first act of obedience. Publicly, I declare before everyone, I'm saved, I'm a follower of Jesus. This baptism, baptism of repentance, was, a bapti uh, 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 was about preparation he was preparing them. This was not about eternal life. This was about preparing them for the Messiah who was coming. No form of repentance can atone for your sins. That's not what Jesus atones for your sins. No quantity of your work will ever justify us in the sight of God. The forgiveness we need comes through the work of Jesus Christ alone. And what he is saying is what needed to change in the hearts of these people is their, their commitment to Christ. That they needed to turn from sin. To follow Jesus. There was a lifestyle shift that he was telling them must be made. This baptism of repentance was preparing the people spiritually for the Savior, Jesus Christ. Everyone who was baptized identified with sin. They said, I'm a sinner. They recognized their sin. They admitted that they were sinful. And if you think about this, it was an extremely humbling reality for the Jewish people because they were saying, I'm as sinful as the Gentile people. So everyone who was admitting this was saying, I'm sinful. Everyone who was baptizing was recognizing their need to turn away from sin. And John was calling these people to turn away from sin, and he was pointing them to a coming Savior. 
In verse 15, he says, as the people were in ex- ex- expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. They, fought, they thought maybe John was the promised Savior, but John's purpose was never to be on top. Pride is our greatest destruction destructor of God's call on our lives. His purpose was to point people away from sin and to the coming Savior who was just coming on the scene. And this required humility. He said in verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. Humility must reign in us, church, if we're going to follow the call of God. Now, I want to say this. John knew his purpose. Do you know yours? John knew his purpose. It is every believer's purpose to know Christ and to make Christ known. It's every believer's purpose. Just like John, you are called by God to know him and make him known in this world to take the solution to the problem out there and be a part of solving it. The gospel is the part that solves it. The second thing is John lived his life turning away from sin. Are you living your life turning away from sin? This was a baptism of repentance. The baptism of repentance wasn't a one-time thing. I mean, I'm not saying you got baptized. That was just symbolic. But this bat repentance is never just a one-moment reality. I love what my me- mentor told me. He's like, repentance is as simple as something's bad on the TV, turn the channel. I, I think it's sad many times that I, I know some people that are very, have, have lived their life following Christ for a long time, but aren't following Christ. They still have anger issues controlling them and consuming them. They yell at their kids all the time. Lust reigns in their lives and they haven't repented from it. Sinful things that they know exist, they're not turning from. That is not the lifestyle of a Christian. See, what John does is he takes these people and he calls them. I'm not going to be able to get into it. He says, you brood of vipers. (laughs) He looks at the crowd and he says, you brood of vipers. (laughs) In verse 7. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he says, you can't just, you can't go on and say, um, we have Abraham as our father. Uh, he says, even, God could raise a stone up as a, as a child of Abraham. He doesn't need you. You can't use that as an excuse. You have to deal with your sin. He said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, this was, the, the baptism of repentance was a new lifestyle. If you're going to be a follower of the new the Messiah that's coming, you're going to have to live in this place, con- constantly turning away from sin and constantly following your Savior. What does a, rep- act, uh, a life of repentance actually look like? What does it look like to turn away from sin? He goes through this, this thing where he, he looks at the, he looks at the, um, in 10, and the crowd asked, what then shall we do? And he, he answers them, whoever has two tunics, share one with them. He says, be a giver, be a giver of people. Do not hoard what you have for yourself. Give 
what you have. What a great challenge during this Christmas season. This season is not about you. It's not about selfishness. It's about sacrifice. Don't act, don't live this season about what you're going to get, but what you give. He says, be fair. He talks to the tax collector and he says, you know, don't, don't take advantage of people anymore. Be fair with people. And then he looks over, and these were just the people in the room. He looks over at the, at the, at the soldiers and he says, do, do not, uh, he says, be content with what you make. So don't abuse your power to get more from people. Don't use your power and position for personal gain. Do not oppress people. He looks at people, and basically, those things are less important. Those specific things are less important. He's just looking at the crowd in the room, and he says, you know your sin. Turn from it. And follow the example of Jesus. And I look at us today, who say we're followers of Jesus Christ. And I say, you know your sin. Turn to Jesus. This repentance is a lifestyle, not a one-time thing. This is not talking about receiving eternal life. We know that's a one-time moment. You place your faith in Christ. He does all the work to give you. This is what you do. What you, the lifestyle is a follower of Christ that you must live. Turn from this. Ask God for help. Get a prayer partner. Get an accountability partner. Help me. I'm not treating my wife right. I'm not. Uh, I keep talking about my boss. I, I keep struggling with lust. And I keep doing, talk to somebody. Bring it out. Confess in one to another. Help, help one another grow in the Lord to be like Christ. And let him, let him reign. Let repentance reign in you. Turning from sin and turning towards Jesus. Let Jesus be the model of your life. Be a follower of Christ. That's what a follower of Christ looks like. Be a follower of Jesus. John comes on the scene, church. And he says he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. What was that preparation? Turning from sin. Turn to Jesus. That hasn't changed for me. And it hasn't changed for you. Don't lose sight that God's at work. God's at work. Follow him. Trust him. Obey him. Will you bow your heads with me? I'm just going to close in a prayer. Father, you know where we're at in this room. You know the struggles that we're wrestling with, the sins that we're wrestling with. You know... um, how we're distracted from the real problem of sin and we're just blaming. It's the politician, it's the country, it's this. Lord, I pray you would help us to take personal responsibility for our walk with you of turning from sin and turning to Christ and our proclaiming the gospel of Christ to make you known in this world. Lord, may you be glorified in Jesus' name.